and welcome back. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lexi. And you are listening to Wild About Conservation. If you're new here, welcome. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests. And this season focuses on the coastal environment, from rivers through to estuaries and back out to our ocean. We have it all this season. In this episode, we talk with Ed Lavender, a PhD student at St Andrews University. His research focuses on the movement ecology of flapper skates and integrates experimental, observational and citizen science data with modelling to explore trends in biodiversity. It's Ed's love of science that keeps him on this academic path and it's that passion that really comes through in this episode today. We learn a lot about skates, flapper and otherwise, as well as what Ed's PhD involves. If you do enjoy listening to this podcast, please remember that you can leave us a review, get in touch on our social media and if you would like to support us as creators, we do have a Patreon. Check out all the links in the show notes on our website or the description down below. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Hi, and thank you for chatting to us today. Firstly, can you tell us your name, pronouns, and the country that you're based in? Thanks for having me. I'm Edward Lavender, or Ed Lavender. Um, I'm based in the United Kingdom, and my pronouns are he or him. Fabulous. Well, welcome, Ed. Thank you for introducing yourself. We're looking forward to chatting to you today. Could you just give us a quick overview about what it is that you do and introduce your key interest in conservation? Uh, so I'm a PhD student at the University of St. Andrews in the School of Biology. So I suppose my key interest in conservation at the moment is uh, the conservation of flapper skate, which I'm sure we'll talk much more about. <laughs> I do hope we talk more about that. That is that is the key focus and you um but before we get into that we do have a little kind of icebreaker type thing so it's just a few quick fire questions to warm you up get you relaxed um so are you happy to play with us this is what we sprung on you (laughs) yeah absolutely okay first one would you rather be a dung beetle a mayfly or a cockroach i'm gonna say mayfly uh because um of all those fantastic uh uh films you see of them on nature documentaries it's always at sunset when they're gathering over spectacular rivers somewhere in Hungary or in the tropics uh, and I just think it'd be formidable to be part of that. That was an awesome answer it was like I want to have my bug moment of glory in front of the camera. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Next one what's something you're grateful for today? Well I've been out on my bike Um, had a nice cycle this afternoon so uh, I really enjoyed that. That sounds lush. So finally, what is something you love? You cannot say the same thing that has nothing to do with conservation. Uh, I play the bagpipes. So uh, I guess that's quite say niche. What? But, uh, <laughs> that's been a part of my life for a long time. And uh, I love folk music in general. So I'm going to go with that. I feel like that is such a niche skill. That's so cool. But also terrifying because I don't understand how you hold bagpipes properly. Like I've seen people play. And I'm just like, this This looks like a monster to tackle on its own. So <laughs> my, my hat is off to you already, Ed. It's fab. Right. Okay. We do have two more questions that we ask our guests every episode. The first one is, what is your favorite sustainable swap, if you had to name one? Well, I've recently, I mentioned I like cycling. I've recently changed the bike oil I use. You can get uh, ecological bike oil these days that's biodegradable. So I'm going to go with that. 
Wow. I mean, thank you very much for telling me that because my bike needs a little bit of TLC. So I'm going <laughs> to go and see if I can find some sustainable bike oil because I wouldn't have even thought that that's something that you can get. I am learning. Yeah, absolutely. This is what this podcast is about. <laughs> um, and finally, we do always ask our guests what gets them wild about conservation. So, Ed, how do you get wild? Gosh. Um, I think for me, it's just I've always loved being outside and the diversity of life you know plants animals you name it is just uh, the colors the way they interact the environments they live in the adaptations they have it's just awe inspiring and i think that that the the evolution of life on earth has got to be one of the greatest stories in or well, in the known universe and richard dawkins calls it the uh, greatest show on earth and i think he's absolutely right and i think that that evolutionary story is what got me into biology. Um, but what got me into conservation is that the systematic degradation, I suppose, of that variety and diversity of life. And as well as being one of the great areas of exploration in science, that life supports us. It empowers our economies. It provides us with food, medicine. Uh, and so it seems to me to be a no-brainer that we should all be wild about conservation. That was fantastic, Ben. <laughs> that was you paint such beautiful pictures. I'm so excited about this episode. Um, <laughs> but like you paint <laughs> such beautiful pictures, and you've actually kind of semi-addressed what my next question was going to be, which was what got you into conservation. So maybe I'll rephrase that rather than, as you said, that um, that awe and that kind of very raw view of what got you into conservation. How did you actually get into conservation, I think would be the question I'd rather ask. I guess I just sort of fell into it, really. Um, I mean, I knew I wanted to study biology, and I suppose there's several ways to go into conservation, but because I was always so interested in the science, that was the route I took. And uh, at the end of my master's degree, a PhD opportunity came up, and it was in Scotland, and it was about it included... Uh, field work and modeling and conservation and I thought oh I'll, go, I'll give this a whirl oh, this looks great so <laughs> I guess with that background interest I just sort of fell into it mm. I love the term fell into it because I feel that the more people I speak to the more people do just fall into things that they really enjoy and I love the message that you don't have to have it all planned out nobody has it all planned out and you know, take opportunities, they come and things will work out if you, you know, t say yes to some good things and work hard and stuff. So you're a PhD student in St. Andrews. That sounds amazing. Um, but could you tell us about your academic career so far? So what got you to the point of being? Um, well, I guess I've always been really interested in science. And when I was at school, one of the subjects I studied was biology. And I guess this is really taking you back to the beginning, but I read a book, I read The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. And I think there's a, there's few books that one reads in life that genuinely change the way you think about the world. And uh, I, read the, I read The Selfish Gene, and from the moment I started reading, I was absolutely gripped. And uh, when I finished the book, I, I genuinely did see the world in a whole new way. And so that was that. I was off to study biology, um, my heart was set on it. Um, so I went to Oxford to study biology. And uh, that the, the degree at Oxford's biological sciences, so it's a really broad degree. Um, 
And that's good because you get a chance to dip into so many different things, which worked quite well for me because I have such a variety of interests um, that uh, it was a real opportunity to explore different areas, different areas of science, different areas of biology. And I had weekly tutorials with a, with a chap, Alex, Professor Alex Rogers, who's a very eminent marine ecologist, um, marine biologist. Uh, he's just written a book, actually, which if you haven't read, you should check out. It's called The Deep. It's Anyway, I had the great fortune, really, of going to tutorials with Alex. And uh, every week I would come out and I would just feel so inspired about the work he was doing uh, to uncover and protect uh, the life in our oceans um, that uh, I decided maybe marine biology was the field of study that I wanted to go into. Um, and so kind of being inspired by Alex, I went on to do a master's at the University of St. Andrews and uh, Scottish Association for Marine Science, uh, mm. specifically in in a more marine-based topic. It was uh, bit of a mouthful ecosystem based management of marine systems uh there you go <laughs> but uh that was an opportunity for me to learn much more about marine ecology uh and marine biology since my undergraduate degree was slightly broader um and i suppose during that time actually i suppose at oxford i had the opportunity to learn a lot more le- learn a great diversity of of different things but at St Andrews one of the things I really did was start to understand statistics and modeling for the first time and I was inspired by uh, another mentor Michael Morrissey Um, I think he really showed me the power of statistics and modeling for learning about the world for learning from data and um, of course how we can apply what we learn to uh, to different situations for example in conservation um, but I actually did my I did my master's thesis over at SAMS, the Scottish Association for Marine Science on the West Coast. Uh, and uh, I worked with another couple of inspiring colleagues there. Mike Burrows, who's a very eminent climate scientist, and uh, Clive Fox, who's a fisheries ecologist. And uh, I worked on uh, the impacts of climate change on fisheries there, which was really... Uh, it was a modeling based project. We were using mathematical models to try to predict the impacts of climate change on, on marine fish. And uh, again, that was something that I suppose inspired me that I was able to do things like modeling. Um, and all of this sort of led to the realization that I'd like to do a PhD. This PhD came up on Flapperscape that combined uh, combined conservation with with science really with heavy duty science and I thought well let's give this a shot so I suppose that's how I I got to where I am now um I think it's fair to say I didn't know probably what I was letting myself in for at the start of the PhD but uh nevertheless that's how I got here I love that (laughs) I didn't know what you were letting yourself in for all I could think as well when you were just saying about um you know diving into modeling and statistics is I have heard and probably said it myself that when you really get in there because once you understand the way coding and things like that work there's a lot of it's logic there's a lot of logic base to it but it's also learning that in the first place and overcoming well for a lot of people can be fear with that um but I definitely think we could call you a wizard um <laughs> you're, a, you're a, you can be a coding wizard and it does feel a bit like magic when you get things to work um and yeah that's really 
interesting all those different projects you've worked on so during that time as well were there any jobs that you were doing that were kind of marini or internships or was it kind of you painted quite a path that led you through academia to where you are now I think the main thing that I've done throughout since leaving school actually it's not marine specific but it's been teaching I've always enjoyed teaching uh, and that's been something I've kept up all the way from teaching school students to uh, contributing towards the teaching of undergraduate students. Um, I think that's something I really enjoy uh, and I've kept up. Um, I mean, I, I did and I have always tried to get on to as many different science projects as possible and get involved in different research projects. So for example, at the end of my master's, I joined the Soye Sheep Research Group for uh, some field work on St Kilda, which was fantastic. You um, oh, wow. we spent several weeks out in St Kilda, which for for those of you listening who don't know, this is a uh, it's called the I think it's referred to as the last and outmost isle. This is a speck of rock basically off the west coast of Scotland, um, tens of kilometres away from uh, from the mainland, and the. The Soyo Sheep Research Group from Edinburgh University primarily uh, and St Andrews, they uh, they go out there and they study the sheep, and uh, it's probably one of the best studied animal populations anywhere in the world. I would think we know more about Soyo sheep than almost any other population you can think of. Um, but it's projects like that that fill you with energy and uh, really inspire you about the work that's going on. That uh, so, uh, yeah, the work that different people are doing to improve our understanding of the natural world and help protect it. Mm. Yeah, and I absolutely adore your pathway through, although, as you've said, it's been very um, academic. I think the way that you've explained it in the fact that you've been inspired by some of these mentors and you've been able to have those conversations and you've been able to to be given the space to grow as a scientist within the institutions that you've been part of is really positive. I know from friends and um, different conversations that not everybody gets those experiences at university. So to hear that you've literally taken life by the horns and you've said yes to these opportunities and taken what you can from the people in your circles of influence is so empowering and it's, it's, it's really positive to hear. And based on what you've been telling me, you didn't quite get into your PhD because of a love of flapper skates. You kind of have a love of modelling and it just so happened to be that flapper skates is the animal of interest. Am I correct? Yeah, no, that that is absolutely right. I would say that I have, I really have a love of science and uh, what science can do to solve the world's problems. I mean, COVID is a good example, conservation that we're talking about today is another example where science is very influential. And I really got into Flapperscape because uh, it was just another opportunity that appeared. And I thought, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give this a give this a bash um, and see if I get anywhere. And I got offered the PhD and sort of away I went, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so I suppose one of the challenging things in some ways about a PhD is you, you zoom in so far uh, you have to you have to push quite hard to get to towards the edges of knowledge uh, these days, uh, and uh, so you, so you end up uh, zooming in to uh, something very specific. But uh, and that, and that's that's fine. But I do have wide interests. Um, it does make things challenging when you have wide interests. I think because 
you, you want to read widely, but at the same time you think, oh, I should be uh, really focusing on flapperskate here. Um, and flapperskate are important, they're magnificent creatures. Um, don't get me wrong, but they're they're only a part of the marine ecosystem, of course. I think that's such a great point, though, and it's something we'll probably get onto a bit later when we talk maybe about some management and data, but exactly that of understanding these components is part of such a larger thing that there is that larger look and you mentioned earlier about your actual masters and an ecosystem-based approach but it is understanding all of the components and then stepping back and looking from top-down point of view of the bigger change and how everything interacts and it's great to have that perspective and remember to step back and that's probably for any anyone that's listening remember to step back especially PhD students that are listening remember to step back and take a moment because there is so much more um so on that note because we keep saying flap escape but for our listeners could you tell us what is a skate and how does that relate i'm probably gonna drop the hint here to sharks and rays okay it's actually a somewhat difficult question to answer uh, but if you just <laughs> indulge me with some uh, shark and skate uh, taxonomy for a moment um basically um sharks skates and rays all form a group called the elasmobranchs within the so-called chordate phylum. And a phylum is just a group of organisms that share the same basic body plan. Um, so chordates includes the vertebrates, which includes us, but it also includes the sharks, skates and rays. Uh, and these form a subgroup called the elasmobranchs. And within the elasmobranchs, the sharks form one group and the skates and rays form another group called the batoids. Now, this is where it somewhat starts to get slightly confusing. But within the batoids, you have a group, uh, you have a, a number of groups, one of which is the stingrays, another one of which is called the ragiforms. But anyway, within this group, there are a num number of other sub subgroups. And uh, one of them is the... Uh, the, the so-called ragid day, which are a family. Um, so we're sort of stepping through the taxonomic hierarchy here, which is the way that life is organized and categorized by biologists. And uh, that's typically what we mean by a skate. And typically what we mean by a ray is a, a, a stingray. But it's when we say skate and ray in casual conversation, we're often not really referring to evolutionarily coherent groups we're really talking about organisms that differ morphologically so skates and rays in terms of their body plan you can think of them a bit like squash sharks um, in as a <laughs> biologist we say they're dorsoventrally flattened which means they're squashed on the top of the bottom um, and the skates tend to have uh, they're basically big flat fish um, they uh, they have a, a long tail, and on the tail uh, is uh, typically very thorny, whereas the rays, like the stingrays, they t tend to have um, several, one or more barbs on the tail rather than thorns. So if you see a big flat fish that looks like a skate or a ray, one of the things you can do is look at the tail. If it has a whole load of thorns, then it's a skate, and if it has barbs, then it's, it's uh, probably a ray. Uh, the tails on skates also tend to be slightly fatter than rays. Um, and in general, skates are often smaller, slightly smaller than rays. So, for example, if you think of the manta rays, 
they're absolutely enormous, uh, but obviously some skates buck the trend, like flapper skates. Um, <laughs> Just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's not always easy to distinguish or uh, skates and rays uh, from each other, uh, but there are some differences. Um, it is complicated by the fact that species like thornback ray are actually they're a skate species. So um, common uh, common names don't help with the situation. Well, I mean, one of the things about skates and rays is the, the taxonomy, the classification is not uh, fully resolved. Um, so it's worth bearing that in mind. Which is interesting in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes their conservation sometimes challenging because uh, to conserve something, you need to know what it is. Um, mm. And if one species is lumped into several species and that that poses challenges for conservation because you're actually dealing with several different species in one, which might have different requirements. And just before we get onto the specifics of flapper skates, do generally skates and rays occur along the same latitudes of the earth so in the same areas of the ocean and stuff so it wouldn't be geographically that we'd split them in general and this is generally speaking the skates uh tend to i mean they they are found from the poles towards the equator as you go towards the equator they tend to be found in deeper water and the sting the stingrays tend to be commoner uh in the tropics than than skates um, so there is a slight geographic difference there. What I was actually going to ask was how big is a flapper skate? Because kind of painting these pictures of what they are, and we've just mentioned that they buck the trend, which obviously made me laugh because I know how big, but if you could paint a picture of how big a flapper skate would be for our listeners, that would be awesome. Um, so you're talking about the size of a standard door. If you double that... <laughs> You're, you're pretty much at flapper skate size. So imagine a big sort of big circular dining room table, a couple of meters across. Uh, they can grow in excess of two meters. The females grow bigger than males. They can reach up to 100 kilos. They're actually the biggest uh, European skate, the biggest skate in European waters. Um, but yeah, they grow from about 30, they, start, they hatch at about 30 centimeters in size and they grow uh, in excess of two meters. Um, so they really are sizable fish. Just to confirm, are we talking nose to end of tail or are we talking width? I mean, they're very approximately circular, but obviously the tail the tail adds about another metre. So um, the total length from nose tip to the end of the tail, is it can be in excess of, say, two and a half metres. There's reports of skate reaching up to three metres. Um, I've never personally seen one that big, and I don't know these days whether whether ones that big have been documented recently, but uh, there are reports of lengths exceeding that. Um, and for anybody in Edinburgh, just because I used to work there, if you go to Edinburgh Zoo, they've got a, um, a life-size model of a flapper skate, um, just where the uh, rock hopper penguins are on the outside of that enclosure. So if you want to have an idea of how big one of these things are is in real life, you can you can go check that out. I mean, you guys can go because you're actually in Scotland. It's a bit of a jaunt for me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. We've talked about how big a flapper skate is, but what 
is a flapper skate specifically? What makes them different to any other skate? Or Ray, because now I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I suppose one of their key distinguishing features is their size. They are the biggest skate that you find in European waters. So if you see a skate in excess of two meters in Europe, it's a flapper skate. Um, so they're... They're just really, I mean, biologically speaking, they are just another species of skate. Um, they're in uh, the genus, so called, uh, the so called genus Dipturus. Their Latin name is Dipturus intermedius. Um, they used to actually, I should say this, they, until recently, flapper skate weren't. Uh, flapper skate and another species. The blue skate were considered one species, the common skate. Um, and indeed, they did used to be common. Uh, and it was only back in 2010 that uh, the distinction between these two species was actually identified. And it was realized that common skate comprised A, the flapper skate, and B, the blue skate. And of those two species, flapper skate seemed to be um, have a slightly more northerly distribution. They occupy mm. sort of uh, the northern half of the United Kingdom and further north, if you like, uh, whereas the, the blue skate tend to be found slightly further south, although I do know some authorities who, who question that general pattern. But uh, until recently, uh, the flapper skate, if you like, didn't exist in the scientific literature. Uh, not really, anyway. I mean, interestingly mm. enough, uh, if you go... Right back into the historical literature, these two species, I think, were distinguished. And then for some reason, they became lumped, lumped together into the common skate. Uh, and then back in 2010, on the basis of genetic data, we actually realized that uh, they were two different species. So uh, they're just another species of skate, but they're a fairly recent one, really, which is pretty cool. That's really interesting. And you see this a fair amount in kind of taxonomy and if you look back at historical records of you know things changing name things getting split things going back together so that yeah i can imagine that makes literature searches for you rather fun of <laughs> having to add a few other names in there to make sure you capture it all um so i just really want to like clarify for our listeners these things are like yeah two up to three meters they are huge but they are right here in uk waters and I think we'll go into a little bit more about like especially Scotland and why Scotland's so important. Um, but I think we're gonna jump into kind of like quick fire, um, just everything about a flapper skate. So the first one that I'm gonna ask is what do they eat, these giant flapping fish? That's a good question. And they probably at a population level, they probably eat they're very generalist predators. Um so they'll eat uh, crustaceans like crabs and lobster. Um, they'll eat cephalopods like octopus, fish even. Um, so they really probably have a diverse diet. Uh, so we don't actually really know much about how flapper skate uh, seek out and, and uh, eat the prey, but they're probably, some individuals are probably very much active hunters cruising along the, I should have should have said this a long time ago. These are we're talking here about benthic predators that live on or near the sea floor most of the time, anyway. Um, 
So you can think about these animals cruising from depths to about uh, near the surface to possibly in excess of 600 meters, uh, actively hunting for prey. Probably sometimes they bury in the sediment um, and sort of uh, wait and see what comes along and ambush attack. Um, probably sometimes they scavenge if there's an opportunity to do so. Um, I'm sort of drawing on a wider understanding of skate here than flapper skate specifically. But uh, one of the things about skate, and, and indeed a lot of marine animals that don't really ever come to the surface, is that it's really hard to study these things. Um, <laughs> because, uh, well, you can't dive down to 600 meters, at least not in a submersible. So uh, it's difficult to to gain an appreciation of exactly how they're capturing their food. Um, it's amazing to me that uh, there are species for which we don't really have a good handle on these most basic of questions, um, which are really important for their conservation. If you want to conserve something, you need to know what it what it requires. Um, so uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's amazing that we just we don't know all this. <laughs> you think in the modern world that we just know everything, but uh, it's certainly not the case. Um, I should have said earlier mm. as well, one of the other things I wanted to mention was uh, just to paint a picture of what these skates actually look like. Um, we've talked about how large they are, but they have these, if you if you look at them, they've got this sort of dark brown, spotty um, uh, upper side, the so-called dorsal, uh, surface and the eyes on skate are on the top of the head and then they have this relatively pointed uh, snout and then underneath the body there's the mouth um, and the underside tends to be much paler um, and uh, you might wonder uh, skate cruising along the seabed how it actually breathes because uh, in in most fish you know water comes in and then through the through the gills and uh, they extract oxygen that way but because the mouth's on the underside of flapper skate or any other skate did that they'd be just choking on sand and mud all the time so they, there's these holes on the top of the head called spiracles and the water as skate are cruising along that goes through the spiracles on the top of the head uh, and then out through the gills like that so skate have all these cool adaptations to life on uh, on the seafloor Thank you so much for explaining that. Um, another potentially tricky question, considering they've only been a separate species this time around since 2010. Um, how long do flapper skates <laughs> live for? But they have the potential to live in excess of 40 years. So I said earlier that they hatch, they hatch from egg cases that are laid on the seabed. Um, uh, over a period of months, they develop in, in, these, in these egg cases and then they hatch as... as essentially miniature but fully formed skate uh, at about 30 centimetres. Um, and then over a period of, say, 15 years, they'll mature into adult skate. Um, so they have this very long maturation, uh, period of maturation during which they develop. As adults, they probably live for another 30 or so years, uh, at least. I mean, we don't have an exact handle on the numbers, but they're certainly very long-lived animals. Um, yeah, it's really cool coming back to that concept because, yeah, I see pictures of people having on dives and seeing flapper skates and just how huge they are. And every time I'm just like, 
I'm so jealous. <laughs> I wanna I wanna have that dive. <laughs> um and yeah, it's just I think that's one of the great things we've talked about on this podcast is so much of just what's actually in our own waters just off our coast and hopefully you know people are starting to realize just how much there is out there um beneath the waves so you mentioned that they hatch from eggs and and how do we know or do we know where you can find those eggs or where they lay those eggs and how long those eggs kind of mature for before they hatch do we know any of that because obviously you've gone through and there's so much we don't know so is there something we do know (laughs) yeah i mean we we have some ideas about all of these things um so you can find skate eggs i'm talking generally about skate here but this includes flapper skate you can find their egg cases washed up on beaches around the coast of scotland around the coast of the uk they're called mermaids purses um, and they're sort of this relatively tough leathery pouch um that contains the developing embryo um before the embryo hatches and then the embryo hatches out uh, and the, these eggs are egg cases are washed up so you can find these egg cases washed around the uk um underwater we don't have a good handle on where skate are laying these eggs but very recently um a potential nursery for uh, flapper skate was found off uh, off the coast of Skye, uh, and an emergency mm-hmm. marine protected area has actually been set up there to to uh, allow to provide time for scientists um, and government agencies and advisors to to go in and, and look at this in more detail. But that's an area off the coast of Skye that's in about. 50 to 25 meters of water, quite a bouldery habitat. And they mm. found a whole bunch of skate eggs nestled in that habitat that they think were were laid there. So they were they probably weren't carried there by currents. Um, so that's that's really exciting because that's the first confirmed sighting of flapper skate, a potential flapper skate egg nursery underwater. As I say, you can wow. find these skate uh, mermaids' purses on beaches around the UK, but they get they get blown blown there by currents and the wind. And the question is, well, where have they come from? Where underwater are these things being laid? And we need to find these locations because they're potentially because the eggs are laid on the seabed, they are vulnerable to things like to activities like trawling. Um, so that's really exciting news and the question is well how many more of these areas are there um how many individuals are using are using these areas and there's or what is the best way in your opinion to find these potential areas of nurseries so i i don't want to misspeak about the context here because i'm not absolutely sure but my understanding Mm -hmm. is that recreational divers were aware of this location or found this location and then they alerted the relevant uh, authorities uh, in particular nature scott uh, in scotland and uh, then nature scott i believe commissioned additional searches and so on so that's the way in which we can find these locations i should say that um, even if you find uh, egg cases which don't tell, you know, washed up on the shore. They don't tell us where the eggs 
have come from, but they can provide really valuable information. And you can submit that information to, I think it's the Great Egg Case Hunt. Uh, just Google it. Um, so you can contribute uh, without getting in the water. Um, if you find these egg cases, you can submit that information online. It's really helpful. So uh, that's a really good way in which we might be able to find more of these places if we compile all of that information, combine it with uh, information on currents and so on to work out where the eggs might have come from engage with local communities and divers and fishermen about uh, what they know because as i said i think this information came from recreational divers um and uh the knowledge that local people have is incredible and uh that's a resource that that we can tap to to help us identify where these locations might be and of course once we find them um, then the genetics becomes really useful because we can use the genetic data to work out how many different females are contributing eggs to a to a nurse to a potential site, how many males they might be breeding with, and and the connectivity, the genetic connectivity between different sites, uh, are females returning to the same site year on year, for example. Um, these are all open questions, but. Uh, we can improve our understanding of these by integrating data from a variety of sources. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the contributions that uh, every one of us can make by just finding egg cases on the shore, for example. I think you've painted some beautiful pictures there of also, yeah, how you can get involved without getting wet <laughs> for some people that might want to. And yeah, I was just having a quick check uh, while we were chatting about that. And just to remind myself, because I remember the day that hit the news of nursery ground found on the west coast of scotland and it's again it's like the amazing just how amazing our seas are but also no one knew <laughs> and it was a it was divers and a fisherman that is local to the area that flagged it up and then from mm -hmm. there like you said there's more surveys being done and trying to figure out more about that site and i guess one of the great things is as you said there's so many new tools. So environmental DNA, where you take water samples and look for DNA in the water is something we touched on in our first season. And that might be something that people can use. And like you said, like looking at currents and the modeling and maybe even looking at the habitat type. And that's something researchers will do for our listeners is look at habitat, map the habitat, and then go check out those other areas maybe. So Absolutely. it kind of just opens this gateway, doesn't it, to so much more. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean... You've said, you painted a pretty good picture of there is this mix of things that we do know and quite a lot that we don't because it's difficult to study these species. And actually, I just wanted to touch on when you were saying about feeding, like however long ago, um, and you mentioned like cephalopods. These skates have got to be real quick <laughs> to be able to catch some cephalopods for their lunch. And um, does anyone has anyone measured that? Do you know how fast they swim? Do you know, I really wish we had that data because it would transform your all life my models of, of where <laughs> skate could go i spend a lot of my time trying to build maps of well develop methods to look at where skate basically where skate are build maps of space use and build reconstruct the possible movement paths of skate over the landscape and if i knew how fast skate could swim that would be really really helpful um so I, I think the big, the big, uh, the big males and females 
at least based on that diet study of on blue skate I mentioned that showed that these larger individuals are targeting potentially fast moving prey. They ought to be mm. able to move at a rate of knots. Um, it's, it's worth mentioning that skate morphology, the body plan is not particularly well adapted, I think, to rapid movements. Um, it's quite an inefficient body plan for fast locomotion. But uh, And the historical view really was that skate probably, are, whenever they're in an area, they're relatively resident. They don't move very fast because locomotion is quite inefficient and they're probably hanging around waiting, waiting for prey. But to some extent, recent work has overturned that view and is gradually showing mm. that the skate makes at least under some circumstances, maybe much more active than we had perhaps envisaged. Um, so, uh, yeah, it just goes to show. But uh, I wish we had more information on how fast they can swim. But may- maybe we will in due course. Ed, potentially the last question we're going to ask you about flapper skates in general is, are they at risk? And if so, why? This might sound pessimistic, but I would say most marine species are at risk. Um I think it's, it's it's often helpful to distinguish between ultimate risks and immediate or proximate risks. And the ultimate risks are typically socioeconomic factors that uh, in turn drive changes on the ground that actually affect marine species like fishing. And that would be the main one for flapper skate. Because they are long-lived and because they lay eggs on the seafloor and spend a lot of time on or near the seafloor. They're very vulnerable to bottom trawling. And uh, mm. they, because they have that slow period of maturation, it takes a long time for them to reach maturity. Um, as the population declines, you, it, uh, it doesn't bounce back very quickly. Um, and this is a common feature in, in sharks, skates and rays in general, is that we say they have a so-called slow life history, which makes them particularly vulnerable to the effects of fishing. So flapper skate or common skate, as we were previously discussing, um, are no longer really particularly common. Um, in fact, flap, flapper skate are critically endangered, uh, principally as a result of overfishing uh, and as a result of bycatch, um, they can no longer be targeted by commercial fisheries, uh, but they are vulnerable to being caught uh, as bycatch. So incidentally, as a result of other bottom trawling operations. Um, and so that has the potential to uh, to have uh, a significant impact in in areas without protections from bottom trawling. Um, it doesn't, bottom trawling might, uh, it probably doesn't kill all skate. And we know that there's observations that common skate in particular uh, that have been caught by recreational anglers and then caught by trawlers and then caught by recreational anglers again, uh, shows that flapper skate or common skate can survive trawling. uh, But the survivorship Mm. is is certainly probably reduced. Um, A ballpark estimate would be around 50% survivorship, but that's very ballpark. Um, so fishing would be the number one activity, bottom trawling in particular, not all fishing is going to, is going to be of a threat to flapper skate, but bottom trawling, because it's 
uh, involves gear near the seafloor where flap escape are living. Uh, that's the main concern for flap escape. But there's other things like pollutants in the waters. Um, they've shown, for example, off the west coast of Scotland, the, the pod of orca that frequents our shores. Uh, I think they've shown levels of uh, pollutants and other, uh, well, various nasty chemicals in those. Um, and so long-lived species can accumulate these fairly toxic products that are uh, in the water uh, that uh, can influence reproduction and affect survivorship and so on. So fishing is is the main thing, but there's a it's worth bearing in mind that there are a raft of uh, threats facing animals and, mm. uh, in the ocean, like pollutants, climate change, of course. Um, we don't know what the impacts of all of these things will be um, and exactly how they'll affect flapperscape and other marine species, but they're certainly worth bearing in mind as we try to conserve animals and the rest of marine mm. life. Just, sorry, there's something that popped into my head as you were saying about that, and I do want to pick up on something on the fishing front in a moment, but... You mentioned orca and you got me thinking because in New Zealand, I think it's the Auckland population actually hunt stingrays. Is there anything that we know of that hunt flapperskate or do we know of interactions with orca or other large marine predators actually pursuing flapperskate? The only records I'm aware of are for predation on flapperskate are grey seals. It's Ooh. probably... I'm hazarding a guess here, but I would I would guess it's probably relatively infrequent, uh, particularly for the larger mm. individuals. The smaller individuals uh, may be vulnerable to to grey seals and possibly to other members of the same species, to other flapperscape. We, we we don't really know, as far as I'm aware, um, whether flapperscape are a threat to each other. Um, but I am aware of some records of grey seal predation on flapperskate. Um, I couldn't testify to the validity of those records, but it certainly seems <laughs> to be a plausible possibility. Mm, they, well, grey seals are quite uh, energetic hunters, shall we say? So plausible but yeah it just got me thinking when you said it. And then my other question was: so on the flip side of why are they at risk? kind of how can we protect them and just picking up on the fishing side because i'm imagining they're getting caught with the bycatch and to combat bycatch with some fish species we have mechanisms that are sewn into nets that allow fish to escape or we have trap doors is there anything like that for flapper skates that would be suitable well yes one of the things that they sh has been shown to be effective in reducing skate bycatch is the removal of tickler chains from the front of trawls. And these mm. are basically chains at the front of the, the net that act to startle fish that are on the seabed into the trawls. And uh, if you remove those, sometimes the net can bump over stuff on the seabed, basically. Um, and I think, well, I, in the literature, they have been shown to reduce uh, the levels of bycatch of skate, uh, removing those tickler chains. So that's a really um, useful approach to reducing skate bycatch. So there are things that we can do to reduce 
this source of mortality and we we should be doing them in my view cool it's nice to know it's not all doom and gloom when there are things that we can change sooner rather than waiting for some more answers i guess but whilst we're talking about you and science can you give us an overview of your phd title and talk us a talk to us again about what it is that your PhD involved before we ask you a lot more questions about you. So I think you could boil down my PhD into trying to answer two basic questions. So the the title of the PhD, I should say, is something along the lines of the movement on the movement ecology of flapperscape. But what that basically boils down to is where do flapperscape go? And why do they go where they're going? so it's these two very basic questions um and part of the work to answer those questions involves developing a raft of methods to integrate different sources of information on their location and to try and use those to build maps of where they're going and reconstruct the paths over which they might be moving across the landscape across the seascape um and part part of my work then involves applying those methods to to the flapperscape data that we have available to to work out where they're going and in particular how much time they're spending in a marine protected area that's been established off the west coast of Scotland for their conservation. So we talked about uh, so-called technical measures, uh, which are ways that we can modify fishing gear to reduce bycatch, and they're really good. Uh, particularly outside of protected areas, uh, but inside protected areas uh, or protected areas themselves are another way in which we can conserve marine species. Um, and so uh, part of my work involves trying to work out how much time flapperscape actually spend in, in the protected area that's been established off the west coast of Scotland. For them. So you mentioned there that you're using different methods to answer these questions which then feeds into what we've spoken about with the modeling and all those types of things that you're going to dive into for us so what are the different methods that you're using I guess to get the data on what the flapper skates are doing also I think your theme tune for the end of your PhD should be Cotton Eye Joe with where did I come from where did I go and rewrite (laughs) it with flapper skates but you know I just have to add in things like that (laughs) so there's a variety of different sources of data on where skate are going and the most obvious source of data that's available was really pioneered back in sort of the 1980s or so um, are name tags and if you add a name tag that (laughs) identifies a skate i should say before i jump into the different tagging methods uh, that skate can be caught on rod and line uh, brought to the surface via a big old fishing rod, basically. Um, and then you can apply these tags and then you can release them back into the wild uh, with this name tag attached or or perhaps a more sophisticated tag. Uh, and then if you catch the same individual again, you know where it started and you know where it ended. So you have some idea of, of where they're going. And that can show you, for example, how far they can move. So there's records of skate being caught uh, off the west coast of Scotland and then rocking up uh, up, up towards Norway, um, for example. So they can certainly move long distances. But there's also records of skate being caught again and again and again in similar locations. 
um, which suggests they may well be either returning to those locations uh, again and again mm. or or residing in those locations. Um, so that's the most obvious source of information on on skate movements. And that's for me, that's a really valuable source of information because it's it it's been that kind of data has been collected over over decades now. Um, so the long term data sets uh, are really valuable in ecology and evolution. Um, more recently, uh, researchers have been, as well as applying these name tags, um, you can attach all sorts of fancy electronic devices these days that measure depth uh, or that transmit acoustic signals to basically listening stations that you can set up in the water column. And as skate with these acoustic tags swim past, uh, the tags are going ping, saying, hello, I'm skate Fred, and I'm just swimming past mm-hmm. this pole, this this listening device. So you, you record that information on the listening device. So that gives you more uh, information on where where the skate are so you really have to pool a variety of methods because the the data from from angling essentially is really valuable in as i said in in providing a long time series but you don't know where the skates are going in between um and you have the same kind of problem when skates are detected at these listening stations they're called acoustic receivers is that uh, when a skate's detected at a receiver you know roughly where it was but uh and when it's detected at the next receiver, you know where it was again. But the question is, well, where did it go in between? Uh, and if there's a long gap in mm. between detections, the skate could have potentially ventured off to Ireland or up to Norway and, and then come back. Or it could have remained in the MPA, in the marine protected area, and we just uh, we just didn't detect it because it's outside the ranges of our of our listening stations, of our detectors. So that's where other information like depth information can become really useful because uh skate live on the seafloor so if you know the depth that they are located at at a particular point in time uh then there's a finite number of places in which they can be if you assume that they're living somewhere near the bottom so for example if you catch a uh if if if, a, if the depth sensor records a depth of say 100 meters the skate's probably not in water that's deeper than say a thousand meters because it's it's, it's on the bottom. Mm. Um, so we can kind of integrate these different sources of information to work out or to try to build maps of, of where they're going. That sounds really interesting. And it, it, it sounds insane to me that you're able to take data from different sources to be able to then create this story almost of science, of where a skate's been um, and interpolate that and make it almost make a story of what a skate does with its time um (laughs) the diary of a skate the diary of a skate as told through (laughs) tags and science um so yeah have you ever been involved with tagging a skate and can you tell us what that works like if you have so i participated on the uh the fieldwork expeditions to to capture and tag skate i should say that anyone can go um and uh, if it's something you're interested in, go for it. Um, uh, you can hire a, a charter vessel out from, say, Oban on the west coast of Scotland and uh, go and angle for skate for a day and uh, contribute that data towards um, 
databases like Skate Spotter, which you could, it's another uh, website that you can Google. So one of the things that the the skippers off the west coast of Scotland are really good at doing is uh, when skates are caught, they also take photos uh, as well as uh, tagging, which I'll talk about. But they take photos and they upload these to uh, to the database. So the the spots that I mentioned a long time ago on uh, the on the skate skates back. They're like fingerprints, so you can you can identify individual skate like that as well. So it's all these different data sources. But uh, yes, I've joined some of these uh, some of these trips uh, with colleagues at the University of St Andrews, and we we go out for a day uh, on on a charter vessel and uh, angle for skate. And uh, when we catch skate, the the work at the University of St Andrews has been focused on. Uh, well, a variety of things, but one of the things that it's been doing is attaching these electronic tags to skate. Um, and for that, you need special licenses um, that uh, colleagues at the University of St. Andrews, particularly James Thorburn, is a real pioneer in this area. Um, he, he he has those licenses, so, so not anyone can do that. But uh, the name tags that I were mention, was mentioning earlier, uh, historically, they were attached externally but these days they're tiny electronic chips that are inserted into the skate wing and uh nature scott works with the skippers off the west coast of scotland and provides provides some of the skippers with uh basically these tiny little dark guns that you just press next to the skate wing and you fire in this electronic tag and that electronic tag when you scan it with the the scanner uh gives you the and a unique ID code for that individual. So it's just a more complicated name tag. Um, but anyone can go and get involved in this work by uh, booking a charter skipper off the west coast of Scotland. Um, they also go skate angling off Orkney, um, but uh, I, haven't, I haven't been up there. I say Orkney itself, just so stunning. So yeah, that would be just yeah quite fascinating like you said that anyone can join it's citizen science you can just contribute to it if you've got the means and you want to go and you know get involved with this kind of project so that yeah it's something to get out so and do and get excited about which I think is great so you already mentioned that you use modeling you coding and you've written a number of packages for the software R and you've told us where the data is coming from so how do you take that data from the work with the anglers, the tags, the sightings, and then interpret it into something, say your models, that you can then use to start to answer those two questions that you told us about. So if you start very basically, off, let me just describe the situation we have here. Off the west coast of Scotland, there are we have these tagged skates swimming around and uh, a number of skate have these acoustic transmitters, these acoustic tags that are going ping every so often, saying, hello, it's Fred going past the receiver number one, or I'm going past receiver number two. Um, and so these data, um, you get back, if you just recover, you, you, the, it's, it's saved every time a skate swims past a receiver and, and the, the acoustic tag goes ping, the receiver remembers that. So it's great. You just go back to the receivers and you download all the data. And then you can imagine that the first thing to do, which is the first thing I did, um, is you just map where skate are being detected. Uh, and uh, 
you know you can build fancy animations and so on but that's really useful because it shows you where where skates are being detected and for how often um and uh you do have that problem of okay where skate gone in between detections but you can start to understand in much more detail how often skate are sort of residing in the mpa for so one of the things we've been able to show is that we know that skate we've known for a long time that skate are many skate are repeatedly caught in this area of, off the west coast of scotland suggesting that they either continuously reside there or or they kind of uh repeatedly return but with the acoustic data we've we've got some skate that are remaining around receivers for for weeks months or even large parts of a year uh, there are gaps in between detections you know and they can be prolonged and uh, they affect the interpretation of the data but that does show that the skate off the west coast of scotland are uh, residing in those areas over prolonged periods of time and that's really promising because it means that if you uh, have restrictions on the, some of the risks that we talked about like fishing uh, they are likely to confer benefits to skate if skate are spending a long time in those areas in which there are restrictions on on those potentially threatening activities um, so that's the first thing you can do you can imagine just mapping where detections are occurring over space and time uh, to work out roughly speaking how much time skate might be spending in the in any particular area um, and in fact you can go beyond that one of the things i've tried to do is you can look at environmental variables and say okay are any environmental variables driving when and where skate are detected and you can look at social interactions by looking at co-occurrence patterns so when multiple skate may be detected repeatedly at the same time you know that raises the question are skate hanging around in groups um, so you can look at some of the different drivers of these patterns um, but the main limitation really with all of this is that uh, is the gaps between detections is how far away escape going and if we want to build maps of movement and space use we really need to sort of go beyond that and i think that's where the method development that you mentioned that i've been working on comes comes into play and uh it's really quite straightforward because when escape is detected you know roughly where it is because it has to be near enough to mm. a receiver such that the receiver can hear it and as the skate goes further away from a receiver, um, there's too much kind of background and noise and stuff for the receiver to ever pick up that skate. So I probably should have said that earlier. Um, but when a skate is detected at a receiver, you know roughly where it was. And for the skate that we have information on their depth, I mentioned that they live on or near the seabed. And the seabed off the west coast of Scotland is very hilly. Um, so you can more or less work out if you have two detections separated by a load of depth observations you can try to work you can imagine that you know where the skate is at, at some point in time and at some point in time in the future and you can use the depth observations to work out the kinds of paths that it might have taken over the landscape um, and so that's basically what i've been developing methods to try and achieve uh, and that tells us quite fine scale information on 
on skate movement. So I've been able to use these approaches and I am using these approaches, for example, to look at how the behavior of skate changes after they've been released by recreational anglers, because we have depth observations after a, a skate is, is kind of tagged, it's obviously released and the depth tags start pretty much straight, straight away. So the skates sink down to the bottom and then they bumble off somewhere in the landscape and we can start reconstructing those paths they take over the landscape. Um, for example, to work out how the capture might be affecting their movement. Um, so there's a raft of things you can do with these approaches, but that's that's the gist, I think, is is trying to combine <laughs> these approaches to to build maps of where the skate go and uh, in some cases reconstruct their paths over the landscape. That sounds really interesting. So fundamentally, what have you found out? Have you answered your two questions or have you found something completely <laughs> different? Where are you at with it all? I think I think we've shown a variety of things. And I should say this is uh, as part of a team at the University of St. Andrews with colleagues elsewhere. Uh, we have found that uh, the level of residency in the marine protected area is really substantial. Um, of course, we don't know... There, there are examples where skate can move long distances uh, away from the protected area, but we have the repeated detections at acoustic receivers demonstrate conclusively that a number of skate spend months, weeks, sorry, weeks, months, or even uh, more than a year pretty much around acoustic receivers. Um, so I think that's one of the big confirmations, really, of previous smaller scale studies um, since 2016 uh, there's been a much larger acoustic array play, uh, off in operation off the west coast of scotland in this marine protected area um, and so we've we've been able to use those data to confirm the level of residency um, using the depth data we've been able to look at how the movement of skate uh, in the vertical dimension um, and really that arises from movement over the seabed over a bumpy seabed we can look at how that changes through time and we've been able to show that skate tend to ascend towards shallower depths at night um, particularly in winter they they are much much more vertically active um, and using the same kind of data, we've been able to look at the behavior, as I mentioned, of Vaposcape uh, in response to catch and release angling. Um, and we found that skates seem to be relatively behave from a behavioral perspective. They seem to be remarkably resilient to catch and release angling. There's not many signals of behavioral change following angling, which is which uh, which which is good news for uh for us really as scientists, because this is one of the ways that we can collect data. And uh, as a scientist, you don't want, want what your your methods of collecting data to have a, a, neg a negative impact on your study organism. Mm. Um, but for as, as we've been talking about, for benthic species that live on the sea bottom in deep water, we have very few options for studying them and we do need this information to protect them. So, so that's one of the other things that we've been able to show um, is that there are examples of flapper skate behavior changing in dramatic ways post-release. Uh, this is work that's 
that's uh, just about to be submitted actually to to a journal but um they they do seem to be on the on the whole quite behaviorally resilient to the process which is good um so these are all sort of uh minor contributions i think to the whole field of flapperscape research as a whole uh suite of of research projects underway at the University of St Andrews and other researchers, uh, other institutions, including uh, Aberdeen and in Norway, as I mentioned earlier, to try to address all the knowledge gaps really facing flapper skate ecology and conservation from from the uh, egg laying sites that we talked about and and uh, the use of those by by females over prolonged periods to the movement of flapper skate to the the uh, timing of their reproduction, um, this work that James Thorburn is leading on the levels of hormones in, in the blood through through time to try and corroborate, mm. corroborate uh, previous records of when they might be mating, for example. So I very much see my work as a small contribution sitting in, in this in large field of, uh, of research. I think, and that's it. it, it's all part of a jigsaw. So each bit, you can't have a whole jigsaw without all of these bits and pieces. And just kind of the picture you've painted of everything, of putting all this story together, as Lex said, and discovering and figuring out and using that logic of like the depth of if it goes from point A to point B, where may it have gone? Have you looked much at the drivers of some of these movements of say the ones that are longer distances or is that part of the work that kind of that's what comes next sort of thing so this is a great challenge in the field of movement ecology as a whole is that <laughs> we collect we collect vast amounts of movement data and some of these tags for example the depth tags take take a depth observation every two minutes and you might have that on an animal wow. for two years so you can imagine you end up with billions of data points but if they're not accompanied by really good environmental data and really good information on prey and all those other pieces of the jigsaw it's really hard to work out why skate are doing what they are doing mm. i've been able to look at it to some extent uh, because we have this fantastic hydrodynamic model off the west coast of scotland so uh the Essentially, this is a mathematical model that predicts uh, the hydrodynamic conditions like temperature, salinity off the west coast of Scotland at quite a high resolution. Um, basically, it divides the sea into this three-dimensional grid. It's quite amazing, actually. This grid uh, rises and falls with the tides. I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, but in each one of these kind of cubes, if you like, um, the hydrodynamic model resolves temperature and so on. So if you know roughly where your animal is, you can relate that to uh, the environmental conditions that are resolved by the hydrodynamic model in those locations to try and work out what might be driving their movements. So for example, in our recent in a recent manuscript, we looked at a number of, of variables, uh, environmental variables that might be affecting flapperscape movement. And one of the variables that was hinted at by the modeling was salinity um they seem to be avoiding inshore areas close to sea locks and rivers that are depress the salinity um mm. so that that uh, seems to be an environmental variable of importance and uh when it comes to for example the depth 
the 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 way they use depth over time that seems to be really strongly tied to light levels as i mentioned in at the onset of night these these uh, skate often not always but often uh rise uh, essentially move into shallower water um and that changes seasonally in summer they don't do it they tend to stay much deeper throughout the day in winter uh, at the onset of night they come shallower and then they descend with the with the onset of day uh, in general um and so there, there's a there's a clue there that light levels might be one of the really important things affecting these these animals but of course that could just be correlated uh with another variable like prey um so it could be that the the prey uh the activities of whatever they're eating is is uh, in some way linked to light levels um, and in turn, flapper skate are responding to those. Or it could be that flapper skate have an aversion to high light levels, for example, because skate eyes are well adapted to low light levels and they might be in some way disturbed by high light levels. So this is the sort of story you go round and round with with movement data. You have, you're able to document patterns uh, and they can be remarkably informative and useful, as we were talking about with the with, for example, understanding the level of residency uh, in places like marine protected areas. But uh, understanding those drivers of those patterns is a bit of another, it's another kettle of fish, really. Um, one of the things I've really wanted to do is try and find signatures of mating in the time series. So we've got these relatively high mm. resolution depth time series. And uh, you can combine these, as I was saying, with the acoustic time series to work out or to try and work out where skate can be located through time and build these sort of movement paths over the seabed. And if you can do that for males and females that are hanging out in the same area, uh, you can start to guess at whether or not they're mating. But the frustration, frustrating thing is it's only ever a guess. Um, and that somehow you know, it does limit what we can do is we, we have these data, uh, but they're certainly not a panacea when it comes to to uh addressing all the all the gaps in our understanding and indeed when it comes to addressing all the conservation requirements of flapper skate and other mobile species uh as you said hannah it's very much a jigsaw and uh the movement data form one part of that puzzle but i think in the counterpoint it's also very exciting in the sense that there is still so much of the natural world that's yet to be discovered and obviously if we knew more it would be easier to do the conservation that we want to do but it means that you know your phd's exist and you can study these kind of things and come up with the more questions because i think as as this podcast just shows once you answer one question it just brings up <laughs> way more questions um so Ed, you've already mentioned about the residency in the marine protected areas of um, the flapper skates, and you've mentioned Hannah how it is one piece of a jigsaw. So Ed, how does your work support the marine ecosystem management, or will it support? I guess I should ask. So, I think what it shows my my work has has really confirmed and slightly extended previous work in showing that the skates spend prolonged amounts of time inside this marine protected area, the Loch Sunart to the Sound of Jura marine protected area off the west coast of Scotland. And that's encouraging because it means that 
if you reduce the pressures to which flappescate are exposed in that region, then it is likely to confer benefits to flappescate. It doesn't guarantee it um, mm -hmm. because uh, flappescate can move out of the MPA and indeed they may well be exposed to threats inside the MPA. Um, but it's, it suggests that it's likely to be beneficial um, for Flappersgate. From an ecosystem perspective, though, if we think about things a bit more broadly, um, I think what the work has shown is that the, and this is really no surprise or big insight, but it shows that uh, you need a raft of approaches um, and that restrictions on, say, fishing in one area can be useful. But uh, you need to be thinking about over, over large areas. And I think my understanding is that in Scotland, marine protected areas are designated for specific key features like flapperscape. Um, one of the problems with that approach is it doesn't really lend itself to ecosystem based management where we think about the whole system because the conservation or the management actions are designed to protect or fulfill conservation objectives for those designated features. And so you could be doing something damaging in an area of that, but provided it doesn't harm your designation feature, then uh, it, it may well be allowed to go ahead. So I do think that there is scope in Scotland, and this is my own opinion, to really progress an ecosystem-based management perspective. I know we've been focusing on flapperscape, which is my own field of study principally at the moment, but uh, I certainly think the scope to design M MPAs, marine protected areas, with a wider remit in Scotland um, and indeed further afield. Yeah, one of the other things I should say is that it's worth distinguishing between different types of marine protected areas. And I think when we all think about what a marine protected area is, we think about what I call a rebuilding marine protected area, which is an area in which the threats to which uh, an organism or a habitat or a system is exposed are actively reduced. And that allows the populations or the habitat or whatever it is to rebound, to recover, to rebuild. And I think that's what we all think about when we think of a marine protected area. But it's worth saying that that's not the only type of marine protected area. And there's a couple of others that I think are worth mentioning. And the, uh, the, the second type is what I call a safeguarding marine protected area, where you don't actually reduce the threats to which your species or habitats is exposed to, um, but you stop them increasing in the future. And this is a valuable thing to do uh, because it, it, it safeguards the system into the future. But what it's not going to do is help us bounce back from sort of our depleted baselines, if you like. Uh, there's a, a widely hmm. sort of commented phrase in, in, in conservation. I'm sure you may <laughs> well have talked about it called uh, shifting baseline syndrome where for each generation, what is sort of normal and natural is uh, what they see as a child. And as that's depleted over time, uh, the next generation doesn't know what came before. Uh, and so you have this sort of uh, 
systematic loss, I suppose, of uh, or degradation in the in the understanding of what pristine systems look like. Um, as a fan, another fantastic book I have to mention uh, called uh, "The Unnatural History of the Sea" uh, by uh, Callum Roberts. It's well worth a read. But what it shows is the the prevalence, really, of shifting baseline syndrome and the way our seas have changed. Mm. Um, I've gone off a little bit on a tangent here, but the point is that um, in the in Scotland in particular, and in many places, the marine protected areas that we've adopted and are in situ are not what we think of as as marine protected areas in the sense of rebuilding populations. They're typically placed in places where historically fishing efforts have been very, very low. So they're not reducing the pressures to which species are exposed. They're only stopping uh, those pressures in those areas increasing in the future. Uh, and I think that's mm. worth bearing in mind. Um, and of course, the other type of marine protected area, which is um, unfortunately com common, are what I call uh, political, or they're often called paper marine protected areas where on paper you say you've protected an area but either there's a lack of of enforcement or a lack of actions to actually do anything to safeguard or or help a population or a habitat rebound so um i think it's worth bearing in mind that when we say marine protected area we may well be talking about different things and it's it's actually uh a concern that we can have marine protected areas that aren't achieving necessarily what we think of as meaningful uh, conservation outcomes. I'm not saying this is the case for flapper skates. I'm really talking very broadly here. Um, but it is this case in Scotland that most marine protected areas are what I would call safeguarding marine protected areas. Uh, and I think that's something we need to work on. Mm. I think you've picked up on some so many points there and it, it was really nice to have that summary because I think that's a really good summary that it isn't as one thing that some people might think that it you do get gr this grading of marine protection and marine management and it's such a complex space because of ownership and different things people want to do and I just wanted to pick up on one of the things that is really prevalent in marine management and you've kind of mentioned it of this safeguarding where you're safeguarding our species or our future we had we used to have the same in the way that fisheries and just in general marine management focused on a species and then it adapts and it focuses on groups of species and then it finally reaches this ecosystem level and that's my jam and that's like it is you can kind of see you know the aims of research to reach that level to guide the kind of work that would allow ecosystem-based protection which we do to some extent see terrestrially where we protect an area and obviously that benefits so many other species rather than protecting a species which benefits a species and there's so much to unpack there that that could be a whole episode of its own so that's where I'm going to leave that statement and we are starting to get towards the end of this amazing conversation of just we've dived into so much. It's been wonderful. Um, so you kind of did touch on it a little bit. But I think one of the last questions I want to ask you Ed, is the work you've done. Can it be applied to other species or is there wider uses that you envisage for these are packages you're making or just the methods you've been using? I think I hope 
that the methods in particular to to integrate particularly the acoustic and archival data the acoustic data i'm talking about is widely used in marine systems to understand movements in localized areas uh, and i hope that the methods will be widely applicable i've certain, certainly tried to design them that way uh, so that it can be applied in a wide variety of circumstances and i i, I hope that they will be of wide interest um, for flapper skate specifically and for, for related skate species, I think we cannot generalize what we found about flapper skate to other skate species or indeed to the to flapper skate as a whole. Mm. But what it does indicate is that studies on other species would be worthwhile uh, because uh, if flapper skate, for example, show high levels of res residency in areas, then it indicates that marine protected areas are one tool in our toolbox that might be really helpful when it comes to their conservation and in turn that's a tool that we might be able to use for other species so it suggests that it's certainly worth thinking about uh there's a phrase i like there's a, a famous um ecologist jonathan folly and he talks about uh, his focus is on the agricultural crisis, really, but he talks about rather than silver, a sil silver bullets, he talks about silver buckshot. And I feel that that's a good description of uh, uh, conservation in the marine environment, too. Um, we have all these different solutions and no one of them is a panacea. But if we integrate them together in, in smart ways, then uh, we really can make a difference. Um, and we can all contribute to that effort in some of the ways that we've been discussing tonight through data. A data-driven science can improve conservation, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and it's a great privilege to be part of that in my own small way. I think that is a wonderful sentence to end this podcast on because I think you rounded up the episode so well. You're right in the sense that you are making a difference. Your science is making an impact. and it is a part of a bigger picture and the only way we can fix any of these problems is as a group in the best sense of the word of conservationists that are trying and not only just conservationists but you know engineers mathematicians the artists everybody that wants to get involved and can get involved should do um but i don't have any further questions and thank you for being a part of this conversation tonight ed and i think you've been wonderful and you've answered things so well um that we've we've not asked probably as many as we wanted to because you're too you're too good at answering them um but Hannah have you got <laughs> anything else to ask or add before we say goodbye no I think that's us and I think that's probably where we will say yeah like like I said thank you for chatting to us Ed thank you to our listeners for listening as always we hope you've enjoyed and have a wild day bye, bye.
Thank you for listening today. As always, we have been wild about conservation and you have been awesome. Please do leave us a review. We would really appreciate it and we read each and every one. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, we're also on Patreon. Just £1 a month, that's 25p an episode, will cover our creation costs. And anything above that, we just donate it to charity. Thank you to those of you who are already helping us to keep creating. The word to keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. Mindful We're on both Twitter and Instagram. Of the way All the links are in our description and in the show what notes. we can do to help preserve and protect it. We chose this charity as we strongly support their mission and goals. Check out the support section on our website to find out more. And don't forget... Our charity for this season is Seafood. This is a UK-based charity helping more people to reconnect to the ocean and waterways for the benefit of their mental health and to nurture stewardship of our blue spaces. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, let us know. Bye.